So good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I am David Cohen. I'm the deputy director of CIA. And I want to welcome you to Spies Supercharged, uh, the CIA and the future of tech. Um, now, I imagine many of you are wondering why CIA is here at South by Southwest. Um, you'll want to know what the hell spies supercharge means. And you're probably curious whether that's something that you actually want. So <laughs> what, uh, what we uh, plan to do over the course of the next hour is to explain to you and to sort of make the case of why uh, what you want very much from your CIA is to have supercharged spies. I'm joined here uh, with three of the most senior leaders in the CIA on technology, Jennifer Eubank, Sheetal Patel, and Nun Mulchandani. Uh, I will introduce them more uh, at the conclusion of my opening remarks, but these three individuals represent sort of the heart and soul of CIA's technology efforts. They are the ones who are responsible for understanding technology, for developing technology, and deploying technology so that the agency can perform its mission. So let me just begin sort of briefly just to give you sort of an overview of CIA and how we use technology. So we basically have three missions in the CIA. We have a collection mission, we have an analysis mission, and we are called upon to, to, uh, to perform covert action by the president. So our collection mission. We are a foreign collection operation. That means we collect intelligence on what goes on overseas. Principally, what we are responsible for is what's known as human intelligence, human intelligence, which is intelligence that we collect from people who we will work with, who are our sources, who provide sensitive information to the CIA. That human intelligence is often some of the most significant and sensitive information that we obtain. It gives indications and warnings of what our foreign adversaries are up to, it helps us understand what our foreign adversaries are doing. When we work with a source, an asset overseas, we have a solemn obligation to protect that asset to protect that asset's family. They're often working for us at great personal risk, and we take very seriously the obligation to protect our sources. So that's the collection mission. The analysis mission is we are called upon to perform intelligence analysis, to help understand what's happening, why it's happening, and what is likely to occur. To do that, we rely on the human intelligence that we collect. We rely on intelligence collected by others across the intelligence community. And we rely on open source information to help us understand what's happening in the world. So many of you have heard of the President's Daily Brief. This is the, the every day the President gets a set of articles uh, that describe sort of the most urgent national security issues that deserve the President's attention. There are these you know, four or five articles that go to the president and to senior policymakers, that analysis is principally written by CA analysts relying on the intelligence collection uh, that, that I mentioned. And then the, the third element I mentioned is we are authorized by Congress to conduct covert action at the direction of the president. So unlike collection and analysis, 
which is designed to sort of describe what, the, what is happening in the world, what is out there. It, in covert action, the purpose is to influence the political, economic, or military activity abroad with the intention that the U.S. role would not be apparent or acknowledged. In that respect, when we are called upon, if we are called upon to, to perform covert action, we are acting as sort of the secret arm of the United States overseas. So those are sort of the three basic responsibilities, three basic missions of the CIA. In all of that, technology is incredibly important to us. So let me give you a couple of examples. So imagine you are an intelligence analyst who's been asked to write a piece in the PDB about China's use of quantum technology for quantum computing or quantum sensing. You'll have at your disposal a whole, a whole mess of clandestine reporting, of human reporting, of technical reporting. You'll also have available to you a mass of open source information. Your job is to figure out from all of that what is most important so that you can write the analysis for the president about China's quantum program. Getting through that information is a difficult task, one that is made easier by technology. And as you'll hear, we are adopting artificial intelligence to help sort of float up to the top of the most important information for our intelligence analysis. It also would be helpful if that analyst has a technical background. And one of the things that we are very focused on is making sure that our analysts have the training, the background, the expertise in technology to be able to perform uh, the role of, of being an analyst. Let me give you another example. Imagine you are a, a case officer who is overseas working in a country where there is surveillance that is done by the government. They use technology to keep tabs on their people. Now, it used to be that our case officers who were meeting our sources could sort of vary their routes, plan to meet in, in discrete locations, leave their cell phone at home to go out to meet their sources. You can't do that anymore. You can't do that anymore, particularly in many places around the world, whether it's China, Russia, other places, where the government is using technology to surveil, to keep tabs on their citizens and keep tabs on us. That technological challenge is one that we need to overcome in part through our tradecraft, but in part through new technology, through the use of technology to combat technology. Now, I suspect there are some of you in this room who are thinking about ways that we can use technology to defeat that kind of ubiquitous surveillance. If you have any good ideas, we'd be happy to hear about them afterwards. <laughs> so those are some of the ways that we use technology in the agency. We have a long history, a long love affair with technology. Imagine almost everybody in this room has a cell phone in your pocket. That cell phone is powered by a lithium-ion battery. The technology for lithium-ion batteries was developed at the CIA. Many of you have probably used Google Earth. Google Earth was a technology that was first developed by a company that we worked with about two decades ago to do 3D imaging. That has then obviously been commercialized. We've also used that technology for ourselves. But we recognize that technology is advancing very, very quickly. The pace of technological change is greater today than it's ever been. And technology itself is a domain in which we need to compete with our adversaries. 
it's not just that we need to use technology to do our business. We need to understand how our adversaries are using new and disruptive technologies against us, how they are weaponizing technology. And in that respect, we are focused on six technologies in particular, which we'll talk about. We're focused on wireless technology, think 5G, 6G. We're focused on advanced computing, quantum and related areas like that, biotechnology and bioengineering, financial technology, uh, advanced power, uh, so the lithium ion battery, um, and obviously uh, microelectronics and semiconductors. Those are sort of the six areas we were, where we are most focused today going forward. So what we are doing here, the reason that we think supercharged spies are, the, are what is necessary is we are looking not just to explain what we're doing, part of our job is to explain what the agency does to the American people, that's one of the reasons we're here, but we're also here because we are looking to engage with all of you, um, to find partners who want to work with us, to find people who want to come and work for us. Because in the future, if we are going to do our mission, if we're going to do our collection mission, our analytic mission, our covert action mission, everything that the agency does, we need to work even more with all of you to get our job done. So with that, let me introduce my panelists. Uh, first to my left is Jennifer Eubank. She is a 30, 35 year veteran of the, of the federal government, working with both the State Department and the CIA. She has, in her CIA career, uh, been a case officer. She's one of these folks out on the, out uh, meeting with our sources uh, and, and, and collecting intelligence. She's also been a four-time chief of station, meaning that she is, has been the lead CIA officer in country in four different locations around the world. She now leads our Directorate of Digital Innovation. The Directorate of Digital Innovation, which Jennifer will describe in more detail, is responsible for deploying the agency's cyber, cybersecurity, and digital acumen across all of our, across all of our work. Next to, Sheetal, next to Jennifer is Sheetal Patel. Sheetal is an analyst by training. She's one of these people who you know, may be called upon to write the, the, and has been called upon to write the PDB articles in the past. She's a 20-year CAA officer. She currently is the head of our newest mission center, which is sort of how we organize our activity in, uh, at headquarters, the Technology and Transnational Issues Mission Center. That mission center is responsible for doing the analysis uh, on transnational and technological issues, for making sure we, are have, we collect the information that we need, and for synchronizing with the private sector in our technology activity. And at the end is Nand Mulchandani. Nand is our, is our chief technology officer, the first chief technology officer uh, in the CAA. He's been on the job for about nine months. He is a veteran of Silicon Valley, worked out in the Valley for about uh, 20 years, started a few companies, did very well, uh, and then uh, spent some time working at DOD in their artificial intelligence operation and has come over to the agency as our chief technology officer. So we are now going to, in greater detail, explain to you why supercharged spies are exactly what you want and what you deserve. So. <laughs> Let's start first with a question for you, for Jennifer. Uh, as you look across the global landscape, where do you see key threat areas, 
and how is technology playing a role in how those areas evolve and how we address them. Yeah, thank you very much, David, and thanks everyone for joining us today. This is really exciting for us to be here, um, really delighted. And, and I'm going to just frame my comments perhaps a little differently than, than maybe the boss here expects. But So CIA, just to reiterate what, what David mentioned earlier, we are the world's premier foreign intelligence service. And we, we think of ourselves as having one key mission, and that is to be America's first line of defense abroad. And so with that in mind and the, the many, many years I've spent overseas, well, throughout that time, I witnessed this dramatic transformation of the national security landscape, fueled by technological change. Primarily, I would say these days, in the digital domain, though you know, not exclusively. And that's the reason that the CIA, about seven years ago, created the organization that I now head, the Directorate of Digital Innovation. They saw the importance of these digital capabilities, both for our own mission, but also from a defensive standpoint. Are we ready to mitigate against those threats? And so um, at that time, we formed this. We joined four other directorates that altogether, the five of us, make up the CIA. So the Directorate of Operations, as the boss here talked about operations, that's where I've spent most of my career. And that is, you know, in popular culture, Jason Bourne, James Bond, Jane Bond. Um, just take away the stunts and the high-speed car chases, add a lot of writing, and you know, <laughs> painful government vouchers, and you kind of get the idea. Um, but our, and our director of analysis, um, where Sheetal is from. So one of the key things I would say about our analysts that's really important is that they tell policymakers what they need to know and not what they want to hear. And if you think about Washington, that's a powerful statement. And so in popular culture, I think everyone would, would think of, what's it, Jack Ryan, right? The most famous CIA analyst, and I cannot attest to whether there's any reality in any of that, so we'll have to ask Sheetal in a moment. <laughs> um, but our Directorate of Science and Technology, so they are our close partners in the tech world. So if you think of it as two sides of a tech coin, we live in the world of ones and zeros, and as David said, it's cyber, it's cybersecurity. It's also open source intelligence, artificial intelligence, and lots of other stuff that's in that sort of virtual realm. But our colleagues in science and technology are largely tech with a physical manifestation. And my counterpart, who has uh, recently retired, sorry about that. Um, do we know anyone who does these? No. <laughs> um, but uh, so my colleague, who recently retired from science and technology, everything from mascara to satellites and everything in between. And, and they do. Thank you. Thank you very much. How's that? Sorry. Okay. Tech issues, right? So um, I will hold this far because I do speak loudly. But what I was saying is so our science and technology directorate is the other side of a coin, if you will, with, with the director of digital intelligence. So we do ones and zeros, and they do tech with a physical manifestation. And I was just recounting that my colleague who used to run that directorate said they did everything from uh, mascara to satellites. And, and they really do. So if you think about Q from the Bond films or the lead character in Argo, um, take away a little bit of the sexier stuff, but that's really kind of what they do, and it's pretty extraordinary. And then the last organizations are director of support. I can't say enough about them, but just imagine you've got this complex global secret mission and how you make that happen, nothing happens without them. So throughout this career that I've spent mostly living around the world, um, I think for CIA we've come to realize, and I think for the country as well, tech is both, well, it's a strength and a vulnerability in a sense. Right, so we've all benefited from tremendous capabilities, tremendous new digital capabilities that have been 
developed here in the U.S. in this kind of innovation ecosystem. But in a way, we're also more exposed and more vulnerable than we've ever been. So there are obvious things. So you think about cyber attacks, you think about ransomware, but there are also really subtle and more insidious things like you know, foreign adversaries manipulating our social media and the impacts that that has on all of us. And now if I think about CIA, this, this kind of explosion in digital technologies and the, the appearance on the scene of what I'll just call ubiquitous sensing, the ability to, to know, you know who my contact, where I am, what I'm doing, who I'm, I'm you know, meeting, all of that stuff. You know, it's prompted people to ask the question, is human intelligence, or human, as, as David said, is human dead? The world's second oldest profession, by the way. Um, is it dead? And, and I have to say, and take it from an expert, it, it's not. There's always gonna be information, there's always gonna be secrets that are only in the minds of fill in the blank, despots, terrorists, criminals. And, and interestingly, it's technology that's also helping us get that information. And so I'm gonna take you back just one quick second to the world as it was when, when I joined the CIA at the age of five. Um, and <laughs> so think about Cold War and Moscow. It was the Yankee Stadium of espionage. Oh, I'm sorry, Fenway Park of espionage. Um, and American officials were surveilled, were monitored aggressively everywhere you went. Everyone you met, every word you spoke, everything you did was observed, re recorded, held and kept and analyzed for t over time. And it was virtually impossible to do anything. And yet we still had to meet spies on the streets in the Soviet Union to answer some of the toughest questions of the day. And think about it, it was, okay, is there gonna be a nuclear first strike? I mean, these were important things. And, and we, we are a learning organization, and I think that's one of the messages I wanted to convey. We innovate, we adapt, these challenges come at us left and right every day, but we never stop. And so we developed and leveraged all sorts of new technology back then. Some of it would seem quaint uh, to us today, but it was groundbreaking at the time. So we had really advanced secret writing techniques, and we had the ability to conceal sensitive materials in everyday objects so we can like, leave them on a street for somebody. Um, we developed really sophisticated cryptology. Um, and one of my favorites is that we created the world's first secure digital text messaging system, um, which was decades ahead of anything else that was out there um, to use for our clandestine mission. We called, it, we called it DISCUS. So we were on the cutting edge of developing technology to solve hard problems in hard places. And you might rightly wonder, well, why the hell am I talking about all that? That's a really long time ago, and she must be really old. Um, but, but I'm saying this because it's really not all that different than the situation we face today. Think about this world where you know, we've got this digital ubiquitous sensing. So it's that multifunctional sensor that you've got in your pocket today, and it's you know, commercial imagery and vehicle telematics and Internet of Things and next generation wireless. All this stuff is collecting all the time, and it knows where you are and what you're doing and you know, whom you're contacting. And so think about that. It's very similar. How do we accomplish what is a tremendously challenging, sometimes dangerous mission in that environment? And so back to our roots, we're a learning organization. It's innovation and it's adaptation. And so we're doing that today. Now, I'll just talk about two quick things very, very quickly. And you are rightly gonna ask, well, that can't be all of it, right? And that's, that's true. I'm gonna tell you straight up, it's true. Lots of other capabilities and techniques and tradecraft, as we call it, the way that we do our job, 
all these things together we think of in kind of a systems engineering approach where we break down hard problems, we come up with new capabilities, and we solve like impossible challenges. But I will share with you two things that we are very focused on because I think most people in industry are also really focused on them today. So data, in our case foreign data. So we've got this you know, exponentially increasing volume of data coming at us left and right. And just as companies are trying to extract value from that, we're trying to extract you know, analytic insight and operational advantage. Which leads me to the second thing that we're really focused on, and that's artificial intelligence and machine learning. And I don't mean like the whole jazz hands, you know, amazing, gonna save the world kind of stuff, and I'm not talking about generative AI and all the hype there, although there's some really cool stuff there. But I'm really just talking about the ability to leverage machines to deal with this, you know, massive information. So burning through haystacks of data to reveal needles of, of insight. And that's what we're thinking about. And occasionally I get the, you know, HAL 9000 jokes or, um, you know, Skynet and somebody described a new capability they wanted to create as, you know, Alexa, please call Skynet. Um, but, but none of that for us. There's really no, no vision of autonomous decision making by machines at the CIA. It's really about, you know, extracting value, um, keying up insights for human review and decision making. And so in this whole technology landscape, the last thing I just want to say is um, our success in our mission is going to be inextricably linked to our ability to leverage technology effectively. And really we have three key pillars for that. It's talent. I think every company in America deals with that issue. It's talent. It's innovation, creating the ecosystem that allows people to be creative, to fail fast, to try new things, to innovate and solve tough problems. And it's partnerships. It's our ability to work with industry and um, academia and other government agencies and departments. And something we don't talk about, we work with governments all around the world to help solve these tough problems. So I'll, le I'll leave it there. Um, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. I, I'll just add a couple of things, if you don't mind. So um, I agree completely with what Jennifer talked about. But I wanted to pull a thread a little bit on the tech threats. So there are, there's the learning of technology for how it enables or hinders operations. But then there's the learning of technology on its own. And then there's the how do you analyze technology and its impact on transnational issues. So things like climate change, humanitarian issues, food security. And now you guys are all wondering why the hell does CIA cover those issues. Well, the reason we cover it is acad uh, academics have known for years that these are the life-changing issues. These are the ones that cause conflicts. They, res they result in the rise and fall of great powers. And so that's why we look at it. It's really not to look at um, the, the you know, availability of toilet paper and Clorox wipes as we did during the pandemic. Right, that's really not going to cause a war. However, we are now hypersensitized to pandemics. We are super focused on supply chain issues and we all know how to use Zoom, including my senior citizen members of my family, right? Which wasn't gonna be unheard of before the pandemic. But now we are looking at a globalized economy, not just the strengths of it, but the actual vulnerabilities. And that's why on the transnational side, we do focus a lot on that because a disruption in you know, toilet paper supply might make people angry, 
but a disruption in rare earth minerals, batteries, anything like that is going to actually create conflict. And so I just wanted to add that to the technology threat. And then to also say that all the directorates that Jennifer mentioned, all of them are interconnected and one cannot do its job without the other, right? You cannot write a presidential daily brief if the operations officers aren't going out and getting that unique intelligence that you need. You can't do it without the support folks making things possible and putting things in place where the operations officers can go. And you can't do it without the Directorate of Science and Technology building a widget. And you can't do it without the Directorate of Digital Innovation having computers that you can actually type into. <laughs> so I would say it's an ecosystem that kind of works in harmony. And that's what I wanted to add so, on that. So, yeah, Shoshio, while you've got the mic, um, Ooh, yeah. can you uh, talk a little bit about how we're partnering with private industry to, uh, to advance the, the missions that you've been describing? Sure. So I think um, I, I can go back to World War II, and that is a long time ago, and none of us were born then, so just state that for the record. Well, maybe David was. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, none? Do you want, can you have another? <laughs> He has to get the mic from me first. That's called a career-limiting move. It's all right. It's a CLM. It's all right. Um, but I will talk about the public-private partnership. So since World War II, the public-private partnership has been phenomenal, right? But what it was is the government had been putting a lot more money in research and development. And so a lot of innovation was occurring on the government side. And I'll give you a couple of examples of things that we have done with, in partnership with the private sector. So one is, um, for those of you who may not know, there's a venture capital firm called Incutel, and it is one of the ones that we have the closest relationship with, the intelligence community. So years ago, and not that far in the past, but they helped fund Perceptive Pixel, which is the creator of the touch tone, a touch screen technology, I can never say that word, touch screen technology used in laptops and iPhones. So you are all welcome for the tech that you're using now. <laughs> the other one is they also invested in Anaconda, which is a local Austin company, which put, um, it made the distribution of Python and Python related databases. You could integrate them all and make it at an enterprise level. And that is something that we needed to use in our own organization, but then also gave it and sold it to the private sector, and it's being used still. Fine. Uh, separately, we need a technology to gather intelligence from satellites. So the technology built in partnership with a company resulted in a device that converts light to electrical energy to form an image. And so that was the precursor to what is the magnetic resonance uh, imaging, so the MRIs. It is also the fundamental technology for the 21 megapixel smartphone cameras that many of you are using to post on social media. So there you go. You're welcome for that too. But if you want to get mad at us, we have had some busts. So during the Vietnam War, we needed to develop a UV forensic technology because we wanted to see if somebody had handled or fired a gun. That technology we developed and then eventually handed it over to law enforcement agencies 
and other state governments, and that is what is uh, the basis of the TSA gun residue test. So the next time TSA pulls you over for a random screening, you can thank CIA. <laughs> but today, what that else? That is off message, but go ahead. <laughs> well, we took credit for we just took credit for the wanted. entire cell phone industry. That's right. <laughs> yeah, and and straight. <laughs> Look, somebody has to make it better. Yeah. You know, once we it develop out. it. But um, today, I think the with the pace of technology and the innovation, a lot of it is occurring in the private sector, and that's why the partnerships with the private sector are so much more critical because looking at technology as an intelligence topic is something that we are not used to doing. We are very, very good at looking at technology for what it means for weapons, but not for what it means in dual use. So like if you took synthetic biology, it can do incredible good for, for public society, but it can also do incredible harm. And understanding that nexus Specifically, when, when we're talking about understanding this technology, we're talking foreign. So what are our adversaries doing? How did they intend to use it? What does that mean for the United States? What does it mean for economic security and technological advantage? What does it mean for strategic competition at large between adversaries? So that's, that's what we're talking about because technology is really changing the way we live the way we work, the way we compete, and frankly, the way we fight, and how wars will mm -hmm. be fought. So that's why it's so important to work with the private sector on that, because we just cannot keep pace with that cutting edge technology as it's going so fast. Um, if we share the resources, technology, and insights, we can emerge even stronger in the, as the global outlook kind of gets a little shaky here and there. But I'll close with this. We, frankly, have a lot of advantages over our adversaries. We have an open society. We have foreign allies. We have the engine of global innovation in the private sector and an unparalleled financial sector. But most of all, our strength lies in our people. So if any of you want to sign up, <laughs> We are recruiting. There's a booth in the exhibition yeah. hall. Yeah, and we have a so, QR yeah. code. Yeah. So let me, so let me just pick up on that and, and, and maybe throw this to none. So I mean, as, as Sheetal described, partnerships with the private sector, critical for us. You know, I mean, just to add one point there. I mean, if you look back 30 years, 30, 40 years, most of the innovation, many, not all, but a lot of the innovation was being done in government, in government-sponsored labs, in, in research that was funded by the government. That is not the case anymore, right? The, the funding for innovation today is much more coming from the private sector. The engine for innovation is coming from the private sector. And so as we think about partnerships with the private sector, we need to, if we're going to continue to innovate, as, as Sheetal is talking about, we need to tap into into where the innovation is being done, which is you know, in the private sector, in these, in these commercial ventures. But the other piece to that, and as she also mentioned, is the need that we have internally for, for talent, um, for, for folks who are technically adept, technologically advanced, who can help us with the developments that we need to do in-house and, and with our own understanding of technology. I know, Nun, if you want to just say a few words on 
recruiting uh, today, the technological, technology, the technology talent that we need for the agency. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, David. Um, should I use this or this? All right, I'll use this. Um, yeah, so I'm a, I'm a recent recruit. I'm a young one to the CIA. Um, and like David said, and, and, and Jennifer and Sheetal, what's amazing about this organization is just the uh, depth and breadth of tech that we deal with. Mascara to satellites, I call it shoe phones to internet scale software, and everything in between at depth and scale. We have world-class experts in practically every single domain. I mean, when you read the stuff that David mentioned earlier, right, the six verticals, right, there is a revolution in technology going on literally right now. I'm a Valley person, an entrepreneur, a four-time entrepreneur, and it always seems like there's a revolution going on in tech, but I think this is a, this is a real one, right? You look at wireless, 5G, 6G, all the next-gen comms, anything that's hardware is turning into software. And the minute it turns into software, it's on a cost and commoditization curves that drives the innovation and the speed in an incredible way, right? So microelectronic semiconductors, right now tactical edge AI, chips being developed. Many of the companies are shooting this stuff into space. Soon we're gonna have compute clusters sitting up there with very high speed links coming down. You would entire mesh of compute and networking going around. Biotech, biomanufacturing, CRISPR is basically software. So the engineering of biological uh, you know, creations or weapons or everything, it's all software now. And then you add AI and basically build a word salad of tech on top of it, and you've got something really, really interesting. Advanced computing, quantum, all the pieces that we mentioned. FinTech, we're taking obviously fiat currency, turning that into crypto. Who knows where that market will go, but in next-gen power, people are working on fusion. So our job at CIA is to track, stay on top of these trends, the analytic function, how it's impacting our operations, and also how we're gonna actually use this to then springboard in and do the job that we actually have to do for, for the rest of the US government and the country. And so all of you with your incredible talent, uh, we have diversity in languages, we have need diversity in people with different backgrounds, different tech, different viewpoints. I mean, you know, our leadership, when you look at it, how diverse it is, the backgrounds, the experiences, it's an incredible place to work. The other side of it is, you know, having been a, you know, money-grubbing capitalist for 25 years, you come over to the government side, there is a sense of mission, right? Beyond actually making your uh, stock options in the money, this is about actually supporting the country, doing stuff that's really incredible. One thing when you're starting a company, for those of you in Austin or in the tech industry, one of the things you always want to do when you're starting a company, and one of the key things that you always want to engage in is scale, right? When you read the books, uh, I think it's Reed Hoffman's books, it's Masters of Scale. Well, there's no other place to do scale than CIA. We're a 24-7 global operation all over the place, and you can work with data, data sets, like Jennifer pointed out. You're working incredibly cool companies, you're working with venture capitalists, you're working with startups, you know, two founders and a dog in a small alley, global big tech companies. You're working on stuff that you get, don't get to see or work on anywhere else in the world. And I can't tell you much, but it's awesome <laughs> behind the curtain. 
And the sense of mission of people's lives depending on tech. So part of it is we don't deliver just alpha and beta products and let it just iterate out in the field. Sometimes we actually have to build stuff that's rock solid because our citizens and our colleagues are depending on it. And then on top of it, when you're building your software or your hardware, you don't actively have in the private industry your competition trying to actively jam you in illegal ways. Well, we got to deal with that stuff every day. So it is literally the most complicated, and the best of the best, basically, are the ones that make it through. But it is an amazing, awesome place. So hope that. And by the way, we have a booth out there <laughs> with free swag and stuff. So get out there and get your CIA swag. Uh, wear it proudly. Yeah. So Nanda has really covered this very well. I just want to add very quickly a couple things to complement what Nanda said, and maybe it comes from my, my own unique background in the organization. So a couple things. Um, a, uh, you may be wondering, like, how can somebody stay in one organization for decades? And in this new world, that just makes no sense, right? You're moving to a new job, moving up, moving over. Um, but all of that happens in CIA. So every couple years, it's something new. So I started off in operations, and what that meant is, Every couple of years, it's a new country, a new language, new issues, new people, new government, new everything. And so it's new and fresh all the time. And so I started there, and here I am, um, have the privilege of leading a large tech workforce, because all along the way, that's what I've done. I've leveraged technology at the edge, as we say, sort of at the pointy end of the spear is the other euphemism, um, and now I have the opportunity to do that. So that, I just wanted to highlight, it's extraordinary. And a lot of people, a lot of young people in particular today, just don't envision going to a company and hanging around for decades. But this isn't the same thing. And then the second, which is a bonus for anyone who's just interested in such things, um, literally see and experience the world. Yeah. So I have studied and mastered at some level of fluency five languages over the years. I've lived and worked for years in many, many countries. And I've visited for work dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of other countries. And nowhere else would I have ever been able to kind of satisfy that intellectual curiosity, cultural curiosity, and the rest of it. So it's been an extraordinary ride. Um, I had one goal when I was looking for a career out of university, and that was to avoid boredom. And <laughs> I achieved that goal. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah. I'll add just one other thing. And, and it is true, you can have 100 jobs in one career at the agency, which is probably why I still work there, because I would get bored otherwise. The thought of doing the same job every day frightens me. <laughs> and, but even if you don't want to work for us or you, you're just interested in seeing the booth, we also welcome insights and your thoughts. And you know, we literally, um, we want to get your, pick your brains, not literally, but we want to have conversations. <laughs> Maybe later, but, uh, but we, we want to, we really want to talk to you and get your thoughts about what you think is going on, or if you don't even want to go to the booth and you don't want to talk to us there, go to the website at CIA.gov and you can hit a button and send us your thoughts and we will get it. Yeah. One of the three of our units will get it. So that's all I really wanted so, to add. So that's like, that is a great segue. So we've got 
we've got some time left, um, and I think there are microphones out uh, in the audience here. Uh, so uh, happy to answer any questions you've got. Please direct any complaints to David. Yeah. <laughs> Hello? Hi. 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 Uh, thank you guys. It's fascinating to be able to interact with CIA. Um, it's really interesting. You guys all seem like really wonderful people. Um, just wanted to ask, do you currently engage in any domestic surveillance and data collection? And as well, um, how we the people, or reassure us, this is Q&A, um, why we the people should trust today's CIA. Thank you. Yeah. Totally fair question. So we are a foreign intelligence uh, agency. Our collection is, uh, is focused entirely overseas. That, that's, that is our mission. That's what we do. Um, we, you know, we are here uh, and we talk about partnerships with, uh, with the private sector here. Those are all voluntary. Those, those are not collection operations. Those are, those are you know, voluntary uh, arrangements that we have with the private sector. Um, but we are not engaged in, I think the question was in domestic surveillance. That's not what we do. Um, we are a foreign intelligence agency. First, thanks for your service. Um, question, in the last 72 hours, we've all experienced a blowing up of Silicon Valley Bank and the subsequent near nationalization of the American banking system as a result of some screw-ups on their part and bad PR and bad risk management, but it shows the fragility of the system. And since one of the roles is to prevent that kind of disruption from coming from abroad. Can you comment on how the CIA thinks about foreign disruption to something as simple as our financial system, which, yeah. as we just saw, was quite brittle? Thanks. Yeah, I'll take a shot, and then you guys should. should. I think one of the things that we are, uh, you know, increasingly, you know, mindful of, and I think this is not just the agency. This is you know across the national security community, is that you know economic strength, economic stability is national security. Um, and you know, one area where this has uh, gotten a lot of attention is in cybersecurity. You know, we have and we know we have adversaries who have you know, tried to cause harm to the financial sector in various ways. Um, our job is to identify the foreign actors that have the intention, have the capability have the wherewithal to, uh, to inflict that kind of harm on the financial sector, to provide indications and warnings to, uh, to policymakers. And then there are obviously domestic agencies that interact directly uh, with, the, uh, with the private sector, with the financial sector in that, in that uh, circumstance to protect them, to harden their, uh, their cybersecurity. So, so yeah, that, I mean, that's just one example. But we are, uh, as I said, sort of increasingly uh, you know, focused on the, 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 the challenge to our economic stability from uh, what our adversaries do. And I'll say just one last thing, I'll turn it on. Part, turn it to these folks. Part of the reason that we are focused on technology um, and, on the, and on the development of technology and how our adversaries are using technology is that the one of Obviously, one of the great engines of the American economy is our tech sector. Um, and understanding how our adversaries are targeting our tech sector, stealing IP, stealing the, 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 you know, the innovations that are fueling economic growth 
is also something that we are focused on um, to understand, again, the threat coming from abroad uh, to, our, uh, to our economic stability. So uh, to, to David's point, and, and the broader point is, one of the key missions for CIA is the issue around strategic surprise, is making sure we're on top of these technological changes, things going on, but we have to separate out kind of speculative issues or problems from strategic surprise. So in many cases, we're tracking a bunch of tech, a bunch of things here, things like SVB and other things, one can categorize as sort of in a different category of stuff that generally doesn't fall under the purview of what we do, but the general category of long-term, long-range understanding of the arc of these things is definitely within that, and that's kind of the scope that we offer there. Uh, so, so I'll just get to your specific question, which both David and Nunt have answered, but I want to be a little bit more specific on when analysts look at, like, financial technology and banking sectors, what they will look at, they won't analyze Silicon Valley Bank. What they will do is analyze the international trends and then see if there are any foreign entities trying to do harm by taking advantage of what's going on in that bank, if that helps. And then I'll add one last point, which demonstrates the earlier one that Sheetal made, which is that these are really integrated efforts across the organization. No one does any part of our mission alone anymore. So in the, the digital sphere, so uh, CIA happens to also have the US government's all source, if we would say, all source analytic mission on cyber. So they're the entity bringing together information from open source, from human, t human intelligence collection, from signals, from you name it and trying to understand that threat landscape. And we are looking at broadly like sectors and trying to understand what hostile foreign adversaries might intend to do and then sharing that information with representatives of the sectors. So we, we each have a role to play in that um, and I think it demonstrates the integrated nature of our mission pretty well. There is a study that came out a few days ago by the um, think tank Australian Strategic Policy Institute that stated that China has already surpassed the US in 37 out of 44 key technologies. And given that Beijing doesn't have to tra travel to a tech conference and kindly ask for a cooperation, I'm wondering how concerned you are about studies by your partner country and then also what area you're specifically concerned about. Thank you. I, I mean, out of robotics, energy, yeah. AI, yeah. What, what, what's the biggest concern? Thank you. I, I have a pretty strong opinion on that. <laughs> Please um, share. Yeah. So I'm not going to comment specifically on the study itself. I did, I did read parts of it. The issue is that in emerging tech, so you've got mature tech, so you've got to break up the sort of uh, different sectors and different verticals, et cetera. Uh, there's certain global verticals that are highly stable industries that are multi-billion dollars and other things. That arc is a very different one than the emerging tech one. The emerging tech race right now is not a race. I think in some sense it's uh, mislabeled because that implies that there's an end point where things stop. As we all know, what, what is this version of iPhone, right? It's iPhone 14. Um, there's going to be a 15, a 16, a 17 and the two big phone vendors are going to keep beating each other up until one goes out of favor or both are displaced by the whole new set of wave of, of innovation. So we're in a locked 
infinite marathon on tech with every single one of our global competitors. So this idea of maybe we were behind, maybe we were ahead, you have to look at the use cases. Uh, there's a lot of discussion, are they ahead on AI, are they not? Some of those questions are a little nonsensical because each single part, like something like AI, is so highly nuanced. There's so many different domains around narrow AI. There's generative AI, what is artificial general intelligence, what particular algorithms are ahead, behind, what data sets, et cetera. So very hard to decide on these things. Each country will bring a comparative advantage to each of those segments based on the point of view and the application of those things. And I am always an optimist in you know, what I call kick-ass American ingenuity. Our model, our society, our country is modeled on a place where, yes, there's potential speculation, but we have thousands of people all coming up with awesome ideas and let the system sort it out. We may have speculative bubbles, they come in, they burst. Long-term, things even out. And I think we, that those, protecting those models, in my mind, is so incredibly important. Now with industrial policy, especially in areas like semiconductor or 5G, because we have to compete with the competition like China, where the state is now commingled with industry, uh, our policymakers, which we are not, have very, very interesting questions ahead of them in terms of how emerging tech policy needs to be created and what is the role of government in that. And that's outside personally my pay grade, but the boss man yeah, you know, it, has it, opinions on it. But no. these are incredibly important things for us as a nation to decide. And I, I mean, these studies are awesome to keep us like energized, but I, I don't feel defeated in any way. Yeah, no, look, I defer to all of you on your tech expertise. I, I'll just say one, one thing on, on this point. I agree 100% with what Nunn said. Part of what we need to do is understand how our adversaries are advancing in, in their technology, in part for the economic competition that Nunn is talking about. But there's also a weaponization angle to this. And part of what our mission is is not just understand what our adversaries might be doing to develop a better iPhone, but it's also understand what our adversaries are doing with new and emerging technology in ways that can harm us. Um, and in, so not to compete with us commercially, but to weaponize. And so the, I, again, I don't know anything about this study, but, one of the, but a, a significant area of our focus isn't just sort of the commercial race that, that Nunn is talking about, but also understanding the threat so that we can do our job, which is to help protect the American people. And may I add one, one last thought? I obviously agree um, wholeheartedly with everything that's been said, but one thing that hasn't been said, and I think it's an important aspect of this competition, and it will be a competition in perpetuity. Um, so if we talk about key adversaries, so let's talk about the People's Republic of China. So what's different for us is that we have strategic partnerships all around the world. We have other governments who are like-minded, who want to promote liberal democratic values, who want freedom, independence, sovereignty, who believe in those things deeply and still look to the United States as, as a leader in that space. We have strategic partnerships that we can leverage any day of the week, and the PRC has transactions. They have transactions with a limited number of countries that are also interested in some form of digital autocracy. And that's an advantage that we have and that we can use any day. So I'm all, I'm all in on the, what was it, kick-ass American ingenuity yeah. and partnerships. <laughs> Amen.
currently studying international security, and my professor yeah. recently told me that there are four intelligence disciplines, which are collection, analysis, covert action, and counterintelligence. Yeah. Um, so today, I skipped over counterintelligence, I uh, will admit it. You have to go back to spy school. Oh, no. Well, I was trying, I was trying, I was trying to simplify, but go ahead. <laughs> um, I guess I will pivot. Um, okay. so he also talked about how intelligence or for military, traditional military, is not supposed to do covert action except for when the CIA does Title 50. Um, could you so, possibly elaborate on that? Yeah, but let me also answer your covert, I mean, sorry, your counterintelligence mission. So that is right. The, the, the fourth of our key areas is counterintelligence, which is understanding how foreign intelligence services are trying to, to spy on Americans. I skipped over it because everything I said about our collection mission uh, you know, applies to the counterintelligence mission as well. Um, on the, the Title 50, so Title 50 is the, uh, the part of the US code that authorizes the, the CIA's activities. That's where our, our, that's our organic statute. That's where our authority comes from. And that's where the covert action authority uh, is described, which says, you know, as, I, as I mentioned, that Congress has authorized the CIA to conduct covert action at the direction of the president. And there's a distinction drawn in that statute between covert action and traditional military activities. I will not bore you with a, with the long description of what that distinction is, but that's the, the difference. There are, the, the military operates under Title 10. It operates uh, in ways that are not uh, designed or intended to be unacknowledged or not apparent. In covert action, it is the in, intention is for the activity not to be acknowledged or apparent. And as the newcomer, at, you know, as a newcomer, I can attest to the fact that people, you know, not all of us are sitting back, especially not me. I don't know about these guys. <laughs> sitting in the back room cooking up things in Hollywood <laughs> around crazy things that we can go do outside, et cetera. All of this stuff is authorized by the president through this legal framework and other things there. And you betcha dollar, there are a lot of lawyers at the agency um, that regulate this. So, so that, that, that should calm you down. So I think we have time for one more question. I'm going to make one last remark. For anyone who's still wondering what that's all about, just think about this. When diplomacy is not enough and sending in the US military is far too much, we're the third option. And it's rarely used and only on the instructions of the president. Thank you. Good. Okay. <laughs> that was a mic drop. Yeah, that was good. Last question. Yeah, I have a question for uh, Mr. Cohen. I'm from the Netherlands. Your, the first question at this uh, event was, uh, how can we trust you with the data? Yeah. You said, no problem, it's just for foreign countries. The second thing you said, and your colleagues said. But not the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, Second thing you said um, was um, we have uh, our advantage is that we have cooper uh, strategic cooperation with other countries. Instead, uh, indeed, the Netherlands again. Mm. When I entered your country, I had to give all my ten fingerprints, yeah. and you 
remain, you keep them because my colleagues who were here uh, several years before didn't leave their fingerprints. So how can we as European people trust you with the data? So, so the answer to the first question was, are we surveilling Americans, right? And the answer to that is, as I said, not. And, and I will say, you know, to sort of pick up a little bit on, on what Nunn said, there's, you don't just have to trust me on that. We have layers and layers of, of oversight um, to ensure that what we do, what we are authorized by our Congress to do, which is to conduct foreign intelligence. And we do conduct foreign intelligence. I mean, as, as, as Jennifer said, there are different, there are obviously different uh, uh, countries out there. There are adversaries and then there are friends. The Netherlands is, you know, is squarely in the friend category. Um, but our focus is, is overseas. On, you know, when you come into this country um, and I don't know who, uh, I, I assume that was TSA or somebody who took your, your fingerprints. We, don't, we do not do domestic surveillance, domestic uh, law enforcement activities. We are prohibited from doing. That's not part of what we do. That's what the law, you know, US law enforcement agencies are focused on. But I will say one final thing because I, you know, you all deserve, you know, the, a full answer on this. And back to the, the woman who asked the question before about counterintelligence. One of the things that we do is we work with the FBI to identify foreign spies who are operating in the United States. I'm not suggesting anything here, okay? <laughs> but I just want to be clear. Like, one of our, one of our responsibilities is to look overseas, collect information, collect intelligence about foreign intelligence services that are sending their spies into the United States to collect intelligence. Domestically, the, the, the action arm is the FBI, but we have a responsibility to help the FBI do its job by collecting intelligence overseas. Again, the Netherlands is in a category that is quite different from our adversaries, but that is, but that is one of our responsibilities in the CIA. There's one other, yes, there's one last question, go ahead. Not a Dutch person, actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, I had to give my LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and everything account when I entered the country. You know, it's very thorough. Um, I have a question. Last year, NATO announced a one billion fund to invest in technologies, dual-use technologies as well. 22 countries are investing in that, not the US. I was just wondering about this relation in where do you invest when it comes to new tech, and it has to be purely American, or are you also reaching out to those European tech companies. Just wondering how that works. I'll, I'll pass to Nunt here, who's, who's our resident expert on any of these things. But I will just put out a question. What is an American company anymore? Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's not 1970 and it's not, you know. No, but if, if 22 but, countries yes. from NATO try to invest together and you decide yeah. not to be part of it, yeah. the question arises. Yeah, what I'm suggesting is that we are more expansive in our views about these than we ever have been. So okay. here, over to Nand. Yeah, thanks. That's a great, great point. So uh, we, obviously we're not policymakers, so we're not legislating. We're not the ones who decide that, right? We provide that. So, but let me pull back. In the tech industry, as we know, one of the core, core, core words that we always use is leverage. Leverage, 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 right? 
you want one to a hundred, one to a thousand, one to a hundred thousand leverage. Government dollars or a billion dollars, when you actually look at it in the entire scale of venture capital that private capital is actually funding, it's literally a small drop in the ocean. So our game, and I think our society and our country, our economic system works, where you build high degrees of leverage to get huge numbers of people working on problems on, on our behalf. And I think this echoes back to David's point and, and Jennifer's point and Sheetal's point of, in the old days, the US government used to be the primary driver and investor in tech. What we've now realized is, there's an aspect of pushing that out into the private industry where you can get a thousand scale of what the government can do. And it's the same thing with smart people, which is if a small team is the only one thinking about new ideas, you will never generate leverage and scale. The leverage and scale comes from 500 people working on it. And the role of government, I think, has changed dramatically in tech for the better, right? Which is, you know, if the government was the only one building cell phones, we'd have a government cell phone in everyone's hand. You don't want that, right? You want five companies competing with a race to the bottom on cost, efficiency, and other things. So I can't speak directly to that particular point. And by the way, that stuff in many cases is directed towards what government can do well, yeah. which is primary research and other things that sort of are speculative in nature that private capital won't touch. But we already, as a country, do that in hundreds of billions. DARPA, InQtel, all of our research labs, national research lab, private industry, academia, which is all funded by government. We do an incredible job in this country of funding primary research, which then generates a lot of stuff like the touchscreen and the batteries and all this stuff that comes out of this. So I think we've actually a fairly, fairly good system. And we cooperate with all those 22 countries 100%, I'm sure, in every degree in every area. So, you know, okay. that's awesome, but Thanks, not a problem. Okay. Thank you. As was mentioned, we have a booth over in the, the building next door. Come Sign visit. Up. Thank you.